Good morning. If we've not met before, my name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here at Reading Family Church. And this morning I'm continuing our sermon series in the book of Luke. And I'm really hoping that over the next 15, 20 minutes or so, you catch something of what God has spoken to me and reminded me of as I've studied this passage, as I've reflected on it. And so Lucy is going to be reading this morning from Luke chapter 2, 1 through to 7 from the NLT. So please listen up, lean in, and let's hear God's word spoken to us. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He travelled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Thank you, Lucy. So we need to remind ourselves, first of all, of the context of this story. For many of us, it's familiar, it's the Christmas story. But at Christmas, we seem to see it through an Instagram filter. But it was far from that, the reality. The setting of this was one of empire, the Roman Empire and Roman oppression. And so Palestine and God's people, they were under the hobnailed sandals and the sure fighting sword of Rome. And the Roman emperor at the time, Augustine, he decided he wanted to have a census of what he knew as the known world, all that he was ruling. The point of that census uh, was taxation. He wanted to draw money from those who he was ruling. But he would also then have a list of men that he could recruit and roll into either his labour force or his army. So the setting of this is one of oppression, uh, of people being told they've got to pay to a foreign army who knows nothing of them in a distant land. Now it was a vast empire and so Caesar has organised himself such that each district, each province was ruled by a governor. And the governor Quirinus, he implements this census in uh, what was an unusual way in that he decided that for uh, Palestine, each person had to go back to their tribal village. And so what, for whatever reason, we're not too sure why, maybe he just wants to demonstrate they're in control. You can't just register locally. You have to have the inconvenience of going back to your tribal village. We don't know. But either way, this is what's happened. So Joseph now has to return back to Bethlehem. Now, we know that uh, Joseph is engaged, he's betrothed to Mary, she is now heavily pregnant and he decides to take Mary with him back to Bethlehem. Uh, Joseph is from the tribe of David. David was a king, uh, he had a huge kingdom when he was ruling and reigning but that now has long faded from the family line and the national experience uh, because they're being oppressed now by the Romans. So. Joseph sets off with his heavily pregnant wife. Now remember, this would have been uncomfortable for her. It would have certainly been unsettling. Why are we going? It's 70 to 80 miles, depending on how they got there. And also she would have had the, the shame, the stigma, uh, living with that, that she was betrothed and now 
pregnant. So for whatever reason, uh, they uh, set off. I sometimes wondered in my reflections, why did Joseph take her? Was he just being kind? He certainly didn't have to. He was the one that had to register for taxation and potential service of labour, but he took her. And sometimes I wonder, was it the kind of the, the wagging tongues of Nazareth? Uh, you know, the, the shame. He didn't want to leave her there. So he takes her with her and he heads back. Now, Middle Eastern culture is such that uh, presumably had some extended relatives in Bethlehem. But by the time they arrived up, there was no room. Remember, everyone's returning to their ancestral village. And now there seems to be no room for them. That The provision, I'm guessing, their extended family wanted for them is no longer available. And so they now have to be amongst the animals. And when the time comes for Mary to give birth, and there's no prepared cradle for her firstborn son. She has to lay him in a manger, an animal's feeding trough. And what's curious around, uh, also we just need to know, is it doesn't seem as if there's anyone around helping them. It seems a little bit lonely. She herself wraps her child up in swaddling cloth. She herself lays her firstborn, after all the trauma of giving birth in a foreign place, it was unfamiliar for her. After all that trauma, she's the one that has to lay the child in a trough. So it seems quite isolated. You would expect there'd be family or midwives around, but it seems Mary is leading into these moments. So as we understand the context, it's one of Mary and Joseph living under the oppression of Rome and then kind of traveling. They're far from what's familiar and what's uh, normal for them and having to go through all of that ordeal seemingly we don't know but it sounds like they're more isolated that is the story that we're jumping into this morning and as I've meditated on that as I've reflected on that there's three things classic preach three things that I want to draw to our attention and the first of those is the the providence of God the providential care of God. Now, if the providence of God is unfamiliar to you, uh, you can think about it as simply as the providence of God is the understanding, it's the notion, it's the idea that God is continually involved in his creation. So he's t continually involved and he's involved in such a way that he's directing all things to fulfill his purposes. So he's active, he's engaged, he's not distant, he's not just looking on, he's continually involved and he's fulfilling his purposes. He's working for his own glory. So as we understand the providence of God, I want to point some things out to you which just explain this is God at work behind the scenes. Even though uh, it might have been unfamiliar or Joseph and Mary didn't see it this way, we can see it this side of the cross event. The first thing of those is notice the place where Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hundreds of years prior to this, Micah, and we see in Micah 5 verse 2, he prophesied that the Saviour would be born in Bethlehem. And lo and behold, because of a, a census, so now Joseph returns to Bethlehem. So when we look at the place, that's amazing, and then look at the timing. So Jesus was born at such a time when the, the Roman Empire in one sense was at its height and so there was now a common language. There was also an incredible transport system. The Roman roads trans, 
transformed how you moved around. So now is the perfect time because of the common language and because of the Roman road systems that God could send his light and hope into the world, confident that this good news could now spread more easily than ever before. And so what we can see now, the, the place, the timing, and then we can see people that God is using. So he's using powerful people like Augustus and Quirinius uh, with the censor and how it's been implemented. It's amazing that Quirinius decided to kind of do things differently and send everyone back to their ancestral homes. So Joseph goes and as he goes, he fulfills the purposes and the promises of God. And we don't really know why Joseph took Mary with him. But I do wonder, did he take her because of the wagging tongues uh, in Nazareth? And so he protects her. So even if it was that gossip, it was he's using people, even what they're doing for evil, he takes them. Or well, maybe it's because Joseph is just a good guy. He wants to be there at the birth of his child. So now he's using a good person, Joseph. In his plans, Joseph would have been unaware of this. But he uses Joseph to take uh, the mother of the Son of God to uh, the place God had designed for it to happen in Bethlehem. It's amazing. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by this, but we should be enormously encouraged by this, that God is able to use civil authorities, Augustus and Quirinius. He can use cultural moments such as a census and he can use people, whether they're wagging tongues or good-hearted people like Joseph, he can use all people to fulfil his purposes. And for those of us who know our Bibles, that's not a surprise, because we know that Romans 8 verse 28 tells us, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. And they're called according to his purposes for them. Remember, it's his purposes that he's about. And because he's good, it works out for our good as well. If we can remember again what happened to Joseph way back in Genesis, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. But actually, he then ascends and ends up becoming his brother's saviors. And when Joseph discloses himself to them, they're fearful because uh, they know that actually uh, they sold him into slavery. Joseph concludes in Genesis 50 verse 20, he says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. That's amazing. That's the providential care of God, working all things together for the good of those who love him according to his purposes for them. Proverbs 16 verse 9 picks this up. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. You know, we make our plans, but ultimately we can be confident that God is going to keep us in step. He's a good shepherd. If we don't hear his voice, he's got a crook. He is for us. He will use us. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says this. The king's heart is like a stream of water that's being directed by the Lord. We see that with Augustus and Quirinius. He guides it wherever he pleases. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Well, and I say this uh, with humility, but I believe this is true. We can presume upon, we can presume upon the unceasing activity of the Creator God. We can presume upon that He is constantly active and He is guiding and governing 
all events. Nothing is beyond him. He's behind them all. Uh, private events and circumstances, acts of angels and acts of people. And it's all being worked together uh, for the appointed goal of his glory. Uh, that's where it's all headed to, his glory. And so we need to be able to see life through that lens, that God is actively at work. So whether we're facing uh, setbacks or breakthroughs, God is behind it all, working for his glory. And as it turns out, because he set his love upon us, our good and our benefit. So when life is exciting, when we're experiencing success, or whether we're experiencing influence or some measure of wealth, or we're experiencing good health, it's all part of God's providential care for us. When life seems ordinary, when it seems quiet, when it seems mundane, when it seems predictable, that also is all part of God's providential care of our life. He's using those moments for our good and for his glory. But also when we experience setbacks, when we experience suffering, when we are passed over, when uh, we've been unjustly handled, when we face adverse circumstances, when we experience ill treatment of others, we are to recognise we're like Jesus. We're sharing in the fellowship of his suffering. And suffering is fundamental to the Christian life. We shouldn't be surprised by that. And we shouldn't conclude that because we're suffering, it's because of sin or that God is somehow punishing us. It, it seems to be suffering is just part of what God uses uh, to ripen us for glory. And, and God will supply us whatever we need to help us to persevere and to endure and ultimately to see our vindication and to see our salvation. God is with us. God is amongst us and he works all things together for good. We can, sisters, brothers, presume upon the providential care of God in our lives, just as God got Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem at just the right time, so he will help us to arrive at the right time and in the right way for his glory and also for our benefit. And I found that hugely encouraging and I hope that you do too. I hope that you start to change the way you see the circumstances that it's at work. Now, whether there are powerful circumstances bigger than you, that you have no control over, that you can find peace and rest, knowing that God's providential care is at work behind the scenes and ultimately God will be glorified and it work together for your good. That's the first thing I really wanted you to catch uh, today. The second one this is this huge spiritual principle that we see in this, that humility always goes before glory. Uh, we need to understand that, and the verse I kind of want to land this in is that it says this, she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Now remind you, this isn't just the baby Jesus, this is the God of the universe, this is God made flesh, this is the most important person that has ever lived. And even calling me a person seems too limited, but you know what I'm saying here? God becomes flesh, and then Mary, amongst the animals, overlooked because of crowded Bethlehem, she has to rug him snack, snugly in strips of cloth, and lays him in an animal feeding trough, 
because there was no lodging available for them. I mean, the wonder of that. Uh, you know, let it sit in your soul now. That's, that's amazing. And the whole context was oppression uh, and that they were small people. So we need to note the way in which Christ was born. He's not born in his mother's house with a support network around him. He's born in the far away, in the unfamiliar. You know, despite the Middle Eastern value of hospitality, there's no lodgings available for them. And that would have been unthinkable. There was no prepared cradle. They had to lay him in a feeding trough, a manger. And they seemed to be isolated for whatever reason. There doesn't seem to be any family around them. Glory, effectively, glory is not the word that comes to mind when you think about Jesus' birth. It, took, it feels like a, the very reason they're in Bethlehem is because of oppression, because they're powerless, because someone is telling they've got to go so they could register for taxation at the very least. But you see, there's this invisible power at work. And so wonders of wonders through the poverty, through the ignominy, through the lack of honour, through all of that, through the poverty of Bethlehem, we become rich. You see, in God's kingdom, there is humility before glory. Jesus was born where no child should be born. The God of the universe is laid in an animal's feeding trough. And there's no glory in that. Jesus would go on later to say in his life, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There's no glory in that. There's no vast palace. There's no entourage looking after him. He had nothing. Now, he knew great humility. You see, in the kingdom of God, I want to say it again, humility comes before glory. We see this model in Jesus' life right at the very beginning. You see, true greatness is not always visible greatness. Jesus said in Mark 10, later in his life, 31, but many who are the greatest now will be the least important then. And those who seem the least important now will be the greatest then. I don't know who's thinking about his mum and dad in Bethlehem. And they, they were so you know, not important, it was overcrowded. We've got a place for you, but it's amongst the animals. They seem so unimportant then. But ultimately, they will be honoured, I guess. Mary was in a remarkable woman. Joseph, the way he handled that huge uncertainty around the pregnancy of his betrothed. Amazing. James tells us that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He goes on to say, therefore humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honour. I read last night in Philippians 2 and it just jumped out at me. I thought, I've got to read that today. It says this of Jesus, Philippians 2. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, here it comes, God elevated him to the place of highest honour and gave him the name above all other names. And so there's this spiritual principle that humility comes before honour. 
as I was reading around this, I came across a commentator, Bible commentator called Matthew Henry, and he lived about 300 years ago, and he had something to say about this that arrested my attention. I thought, I must tell the church about this. He said this, when by faith, when we by faith view the Son of God being made man and lying in a manger, here we go, listen to this, our vanity, our ambition, and our envy, our vanity, our ambition, and our envy are checked. We cannot, with this object rightly before us, seek great things for ourselves and for our children. And that, that just got me really as I thought, gosh, you're right. As we look at Christ in a manger, our vanity, our ambition, and our envy should be checked. And so when we, and when we do that, we cannot seek great things for ourselves, self-elevation, or trying to elevate our kids you know, I'm a father, I've got three kids. Actually, I cannot conclude that my greatest aim for them is to elevate them, to give them honour, glory and success. I trust God for those things for them. So uh, those uh, first two things that uh, we can presume upon the providential care of God in our lives, that humility won't come before honour. And none of us want to, we want to pursue humility, but we don't like being overlooked. We don't always like taking the place of the servant, but that's what Jesus did. The last thing I wanted to point out that I felt God's been speaking to me about, and it's really, I feel this is more prophetic. I feel this is a pastoral moment for us. And this whole idea that there was no room for Jesus in Bethlehem. There was no room. Now remember, uh, Joseph and Mary, they were, because of oppression, uh, they, uh, had to go to another place and when they got there it was overcrowded and in, in Bethlehem there seemed to be no room for Mary and Joseph there was no room for Jesus uh, and yet he still came he still came into the chaos into the crowdiness uh, and he came once it's at the margins but over time as he establishes himself he comes to rule and reign and in, in many ways I, I just thought we're kind of like Mary and Joseph, that they were pressed by Rome, by Augustus and then Quirinius. But we're not uh, oppressed by Rome. We're oppressed by sin. Sin is both a tyrant. It's this active force working against us, uh, telling us what to do. But sin is also a choice. It's our own choices. We activate. But either way, we, we all started oppressed by a tyrant. We all were sent places we didn't necessarily want to go, but felt we were compelled to. We had no choice to. And yet in those places, under that tyrant, that Jesus still came in, in the overcrowdedness of our hearts. As sin was kind of raging within us, ruling us, Jesus has come in. And where there seemed no room, he still came in the quietness of, of part of our heart that was very small. He came. And then he's grown and established himself. And many of us in the church have put our trust and hope in Jesus. And it started with our overcrowded hearts and life under the rule of our tyrant sin. But he has grown and his rule and reign has established. And, and we have now put our trust in him. And I, I feel that the Spirit of God wants to remind some of us now that our hearts have become overcrowded. If you can... Remember, the start of Jesus' life was in Bethlehem when it was seemed overcrowded. There's no room for him then. At the end of Jesus' life, he's in Jerusalem. And there's no room for him there. In fact, 
The overcrowded hearts of Jerusalem were calling out for Barabbas at the very end. The only place there seemed to be for Jesus was in the cross. So they laid him in the cross. But that again was for our glory that the tyrant's sin would be ultimately defeated at the cross. And so I felt the Spirit of God want to say to us that we need to be mindful that you know, we started with overcrowded hearts. Let's not finish our lives with overcrowded hearts such that we no longer cry out for Jesus, but we cry out for Barabbas or some other such hope for our salvation. But we keep making space for Jesus in our hearts. And ultimately to do that, we've got to humble ourselves and say, Jesus, I feel my life is getting busy again. I feel like I'm getting distracted. I feel actually the cry of my heart is like in Jerusalem for Barabbas and not for you. I feel like I'm laying you in a place of shame because you haven't delivered what I hoped you would. But in those moments, there is grace, there is hope because the Saviour is laid in the place on the cross that ultimately has released us. And we're living in freedom now. And my prayer for those of us who put our trust in Jesus is that once again, we humble ourselves and say, Jesus, my life is getting crowded as I'm restarting the autumn term, getting back into new rhythms and routines. Jesus, with all that I'm crying out, I, I need to know you. I put my trust in you. Or it may be today you've never put your trust in Jesus, that you feel your heart is massively crowded out, like Bethlehem in the census or Jerusalem at the festival time. And, and you know there's lots of voices inside you. You're crying out. I just want to let you know that Jesus came in Bethlehem. He came into the chaos where there seemed to be no room for him. He came. And you can invite us in and he will come into your life where there seems no room. He will come and he will grow and, and will and do you good and be at work in your life. But you need to put your trust in him. You need to humble yourself and say, Jesus, I need you to be at work in my life. And if you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, can I encourage you? Can I urge you? Humble yourself before him. Invite him to come into your life. And he will come and he will be gentle and kind. And he will make demands of you and give you the ability by his spirit to grow into those that you will know here, a closeness with him. So I'm going to pray for all of us now who are listening to this, that we would know the presence of God, that this passage would strengthen us. So Holy Spirit, I want to pray now. I pray uh, for those of us uh, who need to be reminded again clearly of the providential care of God in their lives. Holy Spirit, come and, and help them to see that you're at work behind the scenes. I pray for those uh, who just be reminded that humility comes before honour. Those who feel humbled now by circumstances or by others, that they would take Jesus' example and trust God to work all things out, that ultimately they will be vindicated by Jesus. And I pray for those of us who know you, Jesus, that you would help us to make room for you. We humble ourselves now and say, Jesus, come and help us to make room for you once again in our hearts. And for those who are putting their trust in you, Jesus, I pray that someone be saved through hearing this message, that you would come and make, uh, set up home in their hearts and that you would grow and mature in them and they would be changed, that they would call out for you at the end of their life. I pray for this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.